welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. This is so exciting. We're setting up this morning. We're just so, you guys can be seated, by the way. Um, we're just so excited to, to have this, have this group up here to, to, to do these songs. How substantial are Christmas songs? Isn't that cool? I mean, you can be in Starbucks this time of year. And just hear substantial theology <laughs> through the Christmas songs that are, that are going on. And these songs were so great. Thank you guys for doing this. Um, if you guys came early, you got to enjoy bagpipes as you came in. Uh, perhaps there'll be some afterwards, perhaps, uh, that is available, bagpipe Christmas songs. And we've got some cookies for you guys and stuff. We, uh, we're just so thankful you're here. My name's Eric Cobb. I'm the uh, campus pastor here. And uh, we're going to be in Isaiah 9 this morning. So if you want to turn there to Isaiah 9. That's where we're going to be this morning. And, and my hope with this is, you know, I, I kind of like the way it's set up because we have this Sunday before Christmas. You know, we're thinking about when do we do Christmas Sunday? And for most people, Christmas is over when it's over. Are you guys that way? Um, I'm going to make a confession here. I feel like this is a safe place. So our Christmas tree exits the house at sundown on Christmas Day. I know. You're like, you don't have to be anything for Halloween. You are a monster, Eric. I know. I know. It's scary. But um, I love Christmas. It's not like I'm behind. I totally love it. I love bringing it in. Tosh can attest to the fact. Very Christmassy. Very into it. But like when it's done, it's done. So we didn't want to do Christmas on the 27th because some of you might be like me, but it sounds like no. You guys would have been great with more Christmas. But I really like that we're doing it now because this, my hope is there's that hymn that says, tune my heart to sing your praise. And I was just thinking, if God could so tune our hearts this morning for Christmas week, that we could do Christmas week well, that we could be the most into Christmas, that we could be the most into um, what Christmas is about, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? And so my prayer is just that this would be a help to us. Let's pray. Father, we just pray as we go into Christmas week, Lord, that you would tune our hearts to sing your praise, to sing the praise of your Son, the newborn king that we celebrate at Christmas. And uh, we just pray for this time in the word, Lord. We pray that you would come, that you would speak to your people. Um, it, it, we have no need to hear the, the ideas and thoughts of a man. Um, we need to hear from you. We need your spirit to so drive your word into our hearts that it just transforms us and changes us in a way that's permanent. And we pray that you do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are. We're in Isaiah 9. And, um, and this is one of the most famous uh, passages, uh, Old Testament passages about Christmas. Um, it's really important, though, to understand the historical background behind Isaiah 9 here. This occurred about 700 years before Jesus was born. So we have a prophecy here about the, the birth of Jesus that's about 730-something years before he was actually born. And the context of this, because there's a historical context to this, a lot of times you just rip it out, put it on a Christmas card. There's a historical context to this. And the historical context is that this was a very distressing time for Israel as a nation. A couple hundred years before, they had been split into north and south. And, um, and during this time, God was bringing judgment upon the nation for their disobedience, for their idolatry. And the northern kingdom was already attacked by Assyria um, and the thing is, when they would attack you back then, they didn't just kind of put in a new government and make it really hard for you. They would actually deport many of the people to a different place. And so it was a time of great sadness. And you have King Ahaz in the southern kingdom, and he knows they're next. 
Okay, it's not the Assyrians that are going to do it, but they're next. They're the next ones that are going to be taken over. So it's a time of great national distress. And you can see if you if you go in the chapter before uh, chapter eight, starting verse 21, you can see what the mood of the people is. Look at chapter eight, verse 21. It says they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into deep darkness. And this is a time of great sadness. You can see words like distress and emptiness, and they're enraged. They're enraged about how things are going in their nation. You know, there's, there's rage, there's pent up and not so pent up rage within them. They're speaking contemptuously of their king. You know, why aren't you fixing this? Why have you brought us into this situation? And you can see they're also speaking contemptuously of God. You know, why are you doing this to us, God? Um, I can't help but think it sounds a little bit like our day, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like our day? I mean, you think about the fear in that passage, the fear that you can feel. In our, in our nation right now, there's this fear, right? This fear of terrorism, a constant threat of terrorism. Um, there's polarized politics, right? I mean, how polarized we are. When you look at this passage, it says they speak contemptuously against their king. Why aren't you fixing this? Who will fix this, right? There's this time of desperation. They're looking for a Messiah. You know, guys, in our time, it's very natural for people to look for Messiahs, and we see that kind of in our political arrangements right now. And uh, history would tell us we need to be very careful which Messiah we pick right? This passage is about a Messiah. It also it kind of brings to mind um, our time because there's a blaming of God, you know, and that's common in our time. If he exists, he's in a lot of trouble with me. If he exists, he's got a lot of explaining to do. And so it's very similar. I was, I'm a horse veterinarian, and this week, um, I think it was Thursday, I was out on a vet call, and I uh, was talking to one of my clients, and, and she was telling me about the LA school system being shut down. It's like 640,000 students or something not able to go to school, and her comment to me was, and I could just feel it in her, that this was no, you know, this was her heart. She goes, I can't wait for this to change. She's like, I don't think I can take this much longer. You know, and I was feeling, I could feel that on her. And I, I think that's the mood of all of us, too. That's the context of the Christmas promise in Isaiah 9. That's the world that's being spoken into. Um, and, and look at, though, at the bright promise that God has here for his people and for us. He has a, a promise of a bright future for both them and for us. Look at how it starts. But. Isn't that great? Don't you love that word? This is one of the beautiful buts of scripture. There's many of them. Uh, you could find one in Ephesians 2. You can find so many where there's a darkness and then there's a but God. This starts with but. It says some, sometime maybe we'll do a series on that. Um, but uh, Isaiah um, 9, 1 says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former times he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times he has made glorious by the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. 
They rejoice before you as with the joy of harvest. They are glad as with them who divide the spoil. So it says, but God, God is going to create light in this dark place. God is going to bring joy to the gloom. And look at the joy that's here. It's a multifaceted deep joy. It's not just like, you know, my life's going pretty good in this area, but not in that area. Look at verse three. It says, you have multiplied, you have increased their joy. And look at what it says, two types of joy, the joy that they have at harvest. You think about like farmers, and we're kind of detached from that, but there's a lot of anxiety to farming, right? The rains could come at a wrong time. A storm could come at a wrong time. Maybe not enough rain will come. And then there's a the joy of harvest where you know like it's all taken care of, you know, at least for now. We can rest for a few months because the harvest is in. We don't have to worry. There's no future that's scary to us. The harvest is in. And look at the other type of joy. It says, as those who divide the spoils. It's, it's the joy of after a military victory, knowing that your people are safe and, and you've actually acquired wealth from the battle. It's a joy in every part of this life. And God is going to bring that joy to a dark land. And, and how is he going to do it? What is he going to do? If you look in your passage here in, in the chapter, you'll see there's three things he talks about that he's going to do to bring joy. And they all start with four. Do you see them? There's three verses there. They all start with four. The first one is, is that God is going to free the enslaved. Take a look at verse four. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. Um, what's going on here where well, they talk about this yoke of a burden? This isn't yoke as in yoke in an egg. And I think that's important to say. Not a lot of people realize that. They think, you know, we talk about unequally yoked and stuff. People are like, uh, so what's the egg have to do with it, you know? This is a heavy wooden beam that would go over animals, okay? So you might have two oxen, you put a heavy wooden beam over them, and that would allow them to pull a load together. Or maybe over donkeys or something like that. The image here is being enslaved like animals, okay? They're saying that in that time, they were taken over by these foreign nations, invaded, and they were literally enslaved. They're being treated like animals, like, like beasts of burden, okay? I know, don't do that. Um, they were beat down. I think we were Rolling Stones thing. They were beat down with the rod of oppression, guys. There, it says there was a rod of the oppressor. There was, there was a consequence to their sin. All this happened because of their sin. They, they walked away from God, and then what happened was, because of their sin, there was this oppression. There was these foreign nations coming in and conquering them and beating them down. Guys, sin always enslaves. Sin always leaves, leads to enslavement. We think it's a path of peace. We think we can use this sin to kind of make us feel better or to have power or something like that. And then we find out that the thing we use is using us. And that's what we see in this passage. And, and addiction's famous for that, right? You know, you think you're going to get freedom or joy or peace or something from this substance. And then you start to use it and all of a sudden it's using you. You know, it's not something where you're using it anymore. But all sin works this way, guys. All sin enslaves. Whether that sin is gossip or bitterness or anger or um, sexual immorality or anything, it enslaves, it takes control. And what it's saying in this passage, guys, is that God is going to free all those who are enslaved. We were meant to live free. You know, we were meant to live like animals, burdened down and, and oppressed. We were meant to live free, and he's going to bring freedom. So that's the first four. There's going to be great joy because there's going to be a freeing of all slaves. And then secondly, look at verse 5, the next four. It says, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The second reason for this great joy that's going to come is that he is going to bring permanent peace. There's a really powerful image here of... So war's ended, right? And as the warriors and the, and, the, and, the, and the tribe and stuff are gathered around the campfire, they're taking the boots that they would use in battle and they're tossing them in the fire and watching them burn. 
you imagine some cold night being around a campfire and just tossing your army boots in there? And then the next thing they do is take some of their, their war clothes that had blood all dry, dried in them, and they just take it and they burn it in the fire. You know, imagine that. And that's what they did with their combustible things. It says in Isaiah 2, it says this, He shall judge, the Messiah shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people. And listen to this. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Can you guys imagine ever being that confident there'll never be a war again? To where you're like, you know what? Let's get rid of the military. It's a lot of money. You know, we could use it for so many other things. And there's not going to be any more wars. There's no bad guys. Can you imagine ever being that confident? That's what this is. This is let's burn up this stuff. Let's get rid of it. Because war is going to be no more. God is going to bring that kind of permanent peace to where you would have the comfort to get rid of all military things. And to get rid of them too because you don't want them as reminders. You know, there's a lot of bad memories here. We'll just throw it in the fire. We'll take anything that's metal and shape it into something else. Guys, God's going to do that. But how will he do it? How will God bring a new era to this world of joy and freedom and peace? And that's the third four. Do you see the third four? Verse six. For to us, a child is born and to us, a son is given. That's the answer. This is a surprising answer, right? When you have a world full of real problems, warfare, terrorism, disease, things like cancer, evil, right? Suffering, real world problems, death. How, how is this ever going to get fixed? How, how will the world ever be made new? How will it ever be um, brought to a place of peace and joy? And we'll never have to worry about those things again. And you know what God says? So I got this baby. Isn't that a surprising answer? You know, all these real world problems of war and all these things. And he says, he says I've got this child. This baby's going to fix it. Guys, that's what Christmas is about. That's what was on Jesus' birth announcements, right? Jesus of Nazareth. You know, um, he was six pounds, four ounces, 19 inches. And then at the bottom says, he will save the world. Like that's the birth announcement. You get that in the mail and you're like, wow, that's a cute, whoa, what? You know, <laughs> he's going to save the world. Who is this baby? We know from verse six that he's a king. It says the government shall rest upon his shoulders. So we know this, this baby that's born is a king. And we know that he's got the whole government on him. Okay, so he's an absolute king. He's an absolute ruler. He doesn't have people to consult. He doesn't have people to delegate things to. The government rests upon his shoulders. He is a king. What kind of a king is he? Look at verse six. It says, he shall be called, okay? And these aren't literal names of him. These are things about him, right? He shall be called what? Wonderful counselor. This is such a cool thing because that word wonder or wonderful the word wonder there is a word that's normally reserved only for things God can do, okay? So throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, when you see the word wonder, it's not usually something, you know, we could accomplish. It, you know, you think of the phrase signs and wonders. It's things that are supernatural. It's things that only God can do. And Jesus is that kind of king. He is a wonder of a counselor. Um, we've seen throughout John the things that he does. He, he, he heals people, right? He, he heals the blind. He feeds he frees demonic oppression. He makes paralyzed people walk. He turns water into wine. What is all this? They're wonders, and they point. They're actually foretastes, guys. They are foretastes of his kingdom. 
If you think to yourself, what's the kingdom of God going to be like when it fully comes? It's going to be like that. It's going to be like nobody with any disease, nobody that can't walk. There's going to be plenty of wine, plenty of food. There's going to be um, no oppression of sin, right? That's the way it was meant to be. When we see those miracles, a lot of times we think, oh, it's supernatural. What do you mean supernatural? Well, it's the way things shouldn't really go. No, this is the way things really shouldn't go, right? Those are foretastes of the way things are going to go when he brings his kingdom in full. They're appetizers and foretastes of the kingdom of God. And then look at, he's a counselor. What does that speak to? It speaks to his wisdom, right? He has a supernatural wisdom. Have you ever heard Jesus teach? Have you ever read his words? Have you ever seen how he answers people? He is a wonderful counselor. I mean, the things he says, um, John Gerstner says, no one has ever yet discovered the word Jesus ought to have said. <laughs> would you agree with that? If you ever like read through and like, that, you know, that could have been better if you would have just, no, never, right? He always has the best lines. He always says the wisest things. He always has that penetrating supernatural insight into everything. That's our king. That's the one who's going to rule over this world. I mean, we're in a time of, you know, presidential debates and things like that, right? Everybody's trying to look, you know, like they're smarter than the other person. Imagine Jesus up on one of those panels, you know? I mean, they would all have to go, well, yeah, he's more qualified. You know, like this is a person with true wisdom. He is a wonderful counselor. He's also, look at the next one, mighty God. Talk about just saying it straight up, right? This baby, this little six-pounder or seven-pounder or whatever he was, is God. He is God in the flesh. We call it the incarnation, right? Carn means flesh. It means, um, you guys are all familiar with Southern Californians, with what? Carne asada, right? So we get that, you know? Actually, our uh, Christmas tradition is to always um, get carne asada and, and barbecue that on Christmas, because it's incarnation day, right? Start a tradition, you know? It's the best possible food for incarnation day, this carne asada. God actually has become a real man. He has taken on flesh. When Jesus was walking around among us, he was God in the flesh. He, and you realize he is God in the flesh. If you look in Colossians, it says that all the fullness of deity, present tense, dwells in bodily form. He's still one of us. Not wild, forever. And he, so he is God. But notice he's a mighty God. This word mighty is actually, the, the Hebrew word gibber is a word that means, can mean hero often. If you think of like David's mighty men, what does it mean? It means they're strong, but it means they're what? Heroic, right? They're courageous, they're heroic. So what he's saying here is that, that Jesus uh, is our hero God, our God the hero. And you realize, guys, only in Jesus Christ do we have a God who is a hero, because what's a hero, right? A hero is going to face danger. A hero is going to be willing to face death and suffering to save others. Only in Jesus Christ can God be a hero. You look at all the other gods of people's imagination, none of them have done jack for this world. All up wherever they're supposed to be, doing their thing, enjoying their time. You think about um, those deities. They're not heroic. Only in Jesus Christ do we have a God who is truly heroic, who face danger with courage, who accept suffering and death to rescue the world. Only in Jesus do we have God himself dropping behind enemy lines on a rescue mission that will cost him his life. And do you know how he dropped behind enemy lines? As a baby. You want to talk about dangerous, right? He drops here as a baby. 
And, and, and why did he do this? He does this because none of us deserve his kingdom. You guys realize that? None of us deserve entrance into the kingdom he will bring on this earth. Um, we, none of us deserves to be a citizen. Why? We've rebelled against the king. You guys realize that all of our sins, small and big, are all declarations of war against the king of this world. You guys realize that? We have declared war against him. And so, but what does he do? He could banish us, and he will banish many. But what he does for those who will receive him is that he came and he died in our place. He took the penalty for our treason on the cross. That's what he did for us so that he can welcome us in. And so if there's anyone here, and I think most of you are in this place, but some of you might not be yet, any of you here that would receive this savior king, this king hero, who will receive him, he will welcome into his new world. Isn't that awesome? What kind of king does that? You know, to traitors. You know, there's a case right now of a soldier that, you know, looks like he deserted and there's this whole talk of treason and what are we going to do with them and stuff like that. You know what God does for traitors? Dies for them if they'll have him. And so come to him. He is God, our hero. He's also everlasting father. Okay, this one might trip you out, especially those of you who are theologically minded. You're thinking Trinity and you're thinking, wait, this is the son. Now you're saying he's the father. You mess with the Trinity. This doesn't mean God the Father. This has to do with his relationship with his subjects. His relationship with his subjects is, as, is a fatherly relationship. You know, it isn't that he's a distant king. He treats us as a father, meaning that he is, protects us, he provides for us, and we see here he's an everlasting father, that that provision and protection will never end. And then fourthly, what's the fourth one? He's a prince of peace. This is so cool, guys. Because this is in a context of war, right? This passage was given in a context of war. We are in a place of war. And yet he promises true peace. He's the prince of peace. Which makes his news both welcomed but hard to believe. <laughs> if you've been in a time of war for a long period of time, it is very hard to believe it could ever stop. I was listening to a podcast this week. I think it was Radio Lab, And they were talking about this guy, and he'll go out. This isn't his normal job, but he'll go out and take surveys. And he asks the same question every time. And the question is, do you think wars will ever end? Okay? Do you think wars will ever end? He'll go out on the street and do that. And he found that today, like, nine out of ten people think wars will never end. Seems very realistic, right? But what's interesting is he's done some research. In the 80s, it was only one out of three that, says war, that said wars will never end. Two-thirds of people in the 80s thought, we get to some point, I don't know if it's education or technology or something, two-thirds of people thought we would find some time when eventually wars would cease. Not well. But now we're nine out of ten to think that wars will never cease. Let me tell you guys from this passage, nine out of ten people are wrong. Okay? Nine out of ten people are wrong, and the other one out of ten are probably right for the wrong reason. Okay? <laughs> Wars will cease when the Prince of Peace reigns on this earth, and he will. But it's even more than that. You guys know this word peace? You know, what's the Hebrew word for that? You guys know? Shalom, right? Shalom doesn't just mean an absence of war and fighting. Shalom actually means a deep well-being and wholeness and prosperity and human flourishing. So it's not just you don't have war, you don't have strife. It's that you have human flourishing, that every aspect of human life, physical, tangible life, is good. Isn't that awesome? It's such a wonderful word. And so people greeted each other that way, shalom. They're saying, may you have deep well-being and prosperity in all of your life. And guys, that's coming for all of God's people. 
If you have your Bible there, take a look at Revelation 21. At the end of all, you guys are probably like, I don't read Revelation, it's scary. It is. But at the end, the final outcome, and we can all disagree about the middle chapters, we all agree about, we all agree about chapter 21. At the end, it says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. As he said, write these down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of life of water without payment. Guys, this, the final um, chapter or the final part of this world is for it to be made new, physically. Okay? A lot of times we just think about heaven as kind of this ethereal place, this white puffy clouds and harps, somewhere where nobody would want to go. And uh, what, what the ultimate state of heaven is, is that we are in the presence of God on a world made new. That's what this is about. It says that the, 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 new, the Jerusalem came down of heaven from God. It's not, our ultimate state is not for us all to go be in a place designed for God. Our ultimate state is that God's place, heaven, comes to earth and makes everything new. And I know for a lot of you, that's probably the first time you heard that. This is the truth, because the thing is, is that we've kind of watered this down, you know? We've kind of thought of an immaterial heaven as being the place forever. Now, that's temporary, that's for a time, but the ultimate state is to make the whole world new, and to make us new. You guys realize that? Our future state is to live in physical bodies made new, much like his physical body that he has. And guys, that's what our hearts crave for. We don't crave for like, hey, you know, we're going to go be in this immaterial place. Or what's very common around times of mourning is people say, well, they're living on in our hearts. You know, that somehow I'm going to live on in the hearts of, of loved ones. That's not what God promises. Listen to Woody Allen. He says, I don't, <laughs> oh man, <laughs> you'll like it. Okay, Woody Allen says, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. <laughs> and then he says, I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. <laughs> Isn't that true? That's so true. And that is what God promises for all of his people, is not to live on in Woody Allen's apartment, though I bet it's nice, <laughs> but that we will live as resurrected people in a resurrected world. Guys, we pray, don't we? We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a prayer that will be answered. Do you guys realize that? That is a prayer that will be answered. God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It says verse seven, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isn't that awesome? What about in the meantime? In the meantime, it's great because there's this kingdom coming, right? But there's a kingdom here that's growing. Take a look at verse 7. It says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it 
with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever. It says of the Messiah, it says of Jesus, that the increase of his government will have no end. Guys, that is a type of increased government that we can all get excited about, right? If there's any government you want to increase, it's the government of the Messiah. It's his kingdom. Guys, his kingdom even now is breaking into this world. Every time someone hears the good news of Jesus and surrenders to that king, Colossians says that they are delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Transferred. Still live here, still have your same job, but you've been spiritually transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Some of you guys got transferred this year which is exciting. Some of you guys have been transferred for a while. And when he comes, though, he will bring his kingdom fully. But his kingdom is growing. Jesus talked about, right? Didn't he talk about it as like a mustard seed that would grow into a huge plant? Or he talked about his leaven being worked into dough till it goes throughout. His kingdom right now is expanding, guys. It's expanding all over the world. It's expanding here. But what do we do? What do we do in the time in between? Because we've seen his incarnation. We've seen him die on the cross. And yet his kingdom is not fully here. It's partly here, but not fully here. It's coming. It's breaking in. What do we do in the meantime? Because you guys, the original readers of this still had to deal with an invasion. <laughs> Bottom line, right? They still had to deal with, quote, real life problems in the meantime until the Messiah does come fully. And we still have to deal with the effects of the fallen world, right? We have to deal with our bodies, whether that's, you know, physical type things of pain and soreness and things like that. Maybe that's chemical things in our brains that just don't work right, things that we struggle with in our bodies. Maybe some of you are dealing with cancer or dealing with some sort of chronic disease. We have to deal with these things in this world. We have to deal with, still in this fallen world, we have to deal with relationships that aren't right. Think about Christmas time. Anybody looking down the barrel of that in a few days? Relationships that aren't right, Right? We still have to deal with our work and the difficulties of our work. We still have to deal with this world and its fallenness. What do we do in the meantime? Three things. First one is hope in this baby. Hope in this baby. Verse 6 says, to us a son is given. Guys, Jesus was given to you as a gift. He's given. Don't you love that? A son is given. And who's the audience of that? It's us, right? The reader of it. A son has been given. He's been given as a gift to take away your sin. He has been given as a gift to free you from slavery to sin. You weren't meant to live under the slavery of sin. He is gradually, even now, breaking you of that, freeing you from slavery to sin. He was given as a gift to you so that you can inherit this world to come that I'm talking about. Um, and, and, and the challenge of Christmas is to hope in him. Hope in him. And guys, hope is not wishful thinking. Hope's been hijacked. We might need a new word. Or we'll use the Greek word or something. I don't know. When people say, I hope, they usually mean it's not going to happen. Okay, you guys, most of you had Christmas parties or whatever. If somebody said, hey, you going to come? So I hope so. You scratch them off the list, <laughs> right? They're not coming if they say they hope they're coming, right? Hope is not like that. Did you guys notice this passage is mostly written in past tense? Did that trip you out? When it talks about the Messiah coming and being born and all these things, it's talking past tense. Why? Because the way that prophecy worked for Isaiah and the other prophets is they were kind of, in their mind, transported into the future beyond the fulfillment and would look back at it as if it already happened. It's a way of saying, hope in this, it's as good as done. I've seen it, I've been there, and I know it's happening. 
Isn't that cool? Um, and hope is like that. Hope is a certain expectation that God is going to fulfill his promise. N.T. Wright says, hope is imagining God's future into the present. Okay? Hope isn't, I hope so. It is, I'm imagining the future he's going to bring into the present. And there's a great example of this, guys, in, uh, in Luke 2, actually. We didn't read that passage, but you guys remember Simeon? Old Simeon, old wrinkled up, you know, super old Simeon. He's in the temple, and it says in the passage in, in Luke 2, it says that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, right? And he's trying to hold on, you know, like this, he's like, I don't want to die yet. I got to see what he's going to do. And it says it had been revealed to him, Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then there's this really cool thing where uh, Mary and Joseph bring baby Jesus in there, and it says he took him up in his arms. This is this old man holding this, this brand new baby, took him up in his arms and said, Lord, now you can let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He's like, all my problems are solved by this baby. Isn't that awesome? That's what we do at Christmas time. We take hold of Jesus like that and we say, all my problems are solved in this baby. Secondly, we announce the good news. We need to announce the good news of the kingdom. The, the word gospel, evangelion, means, means good news, right? And in, in the Roman context, good news would be things like you would announce the, the birth of a new king, right? Or you might have the gospel runners go and spread the gospel, the good news, herald the fact that there was a new king that had ascended, or you might have um, good news that a victory was won. Like somebody's got to tell people, right, on the internet. Somebody's got to go around and tell the news. And it was, it was news of great joy. Guys, in Jesus, we have all these. We have the announcement of a king's been born. We have an announcement of a heroic victory that's been won on the cross for us to forgive all of our sins. And we have the announcement that a king is now reigning and is going to subdue the whole world under his reign ever-increasing government, right? His kingdom will increase without end. And the cool thing is, when people receive this, when they hear this news and they receive it, what happens to them? They get transferred into his kingdom. They get transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Because whenever that happens, we take back territory from the enemy. That's how God's kingdom is expanding right now, as he is freeing those who've been slaved to bondage to Satan. And what's so cool is Jesus talked about this. He talked about how when, you can't just go rob a guy's house that's really strong, got a lot of war implements and stuff like that and weapons. He says, but when the strong men's bound, tied up, you can rip him off blind. You can plunder his house, he said. And that's what we do when we announce the gospel and people receive it. We're ripping off Satan's house. That's what we get to do together, guys. We need to announce this. Do you guys want to rip off Satan's house? That's what Jesus has for us to do by the power of the Spirit. And we also, guys, need to announce it to each other. Because remember that client I was telling you about? She was like, telling me about the Unified School District, LA Unified School District. And, and she goes, you know, I just can't wait until this has changed, right? And she goes, I just can't stand this anymore. You know, I just, I can't handle this anymore. Um, do you know what I did after that? I walked away. Okay. And I, and I was walking away partly because I was confused about what she meant. I mean, I know she's a churchgoer, so, you know, maybe she's thinking Jesus is going to make it better. I didn't know, you know, and got my truck, drove away. And as I was meditating on this pastor, I was preparing for this, I was like, I need to call her. You know, I need to call this lady. So I call her, 
And she's like, hello. I'm like, hey, it's Dr. Cobb, your vet. And she's like, yeah? Yeah, I think she's thinking, like, is my check bad? Or, you know, what's going on? And I said, hey, you know this world's going to change, right? And she was like, uh. And I said, you know it's going to change, right? And she goes, well, I hope so. And I said, no, Jesus is going to change the world. He is going to fix it. And she goes, well, I hope so. And I said, no, no, no. This is a fact. Okay? This is a fact. This is a certain hope. This will not stay that way. And it was so cool to hear her because she was just like, I needed to be reminded of that. Guys, remind each other of that. This would be the best time of year to remind each other that a king has been born. He's going to transform the world. And then lastly, live in the kingdom. The kingdom of God, guys, how do we define the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is wherever God's reign is felt, wherever it can be experienced. Because God owns everything, right? But there's certain places and there's certain times and there's certain people in which you can experience the reign of God. You can feel that he is ruling in that place. And personally, discipleship is about learning to live under the reign of Jesus, right? And when you do that, and as that grows, what happens is, is around you, there's a hotspot of the kingdom. There's no like a Wi-Fi hotspot, you know, a place where you can like pick up internet, right? Around any person that's learning to live in the kingdom, that's learning to submit his life to the rule of King Jesus, there's a hotspot of the kingdom around you. And it's with you guys wherever you go. Wherever you go, people are able to experience some of what the kingdom is like through your life. Some of what the future is going to be like. In the future, life will be like this. And they get that from being around you. And the cool thing is, together, as we're all doing that, as we gather as a community, what happens? All those hot spots coalesce. Just think about that in your mind. Think about each one of us who's, who's striving by the Spirit to live under King Jesus. And there's that hot spot of the kingdom around us where this kind of bubble of, of area where this is the way it's going to be in the future as people submit to King Jesus. And when we gather, all those hot spots kind of bubble together. They all kind of coalesce together. The church, guys, the church community is an outpost of the kingdom. This gathering's important. Anytime you guys gather is important. It's important because it's an outpost of the kingdom. Your family, as you have more and more believers in your family, is an outpost of the kingdom. It is a place where people can come and taste a bit of what the kingdom will be like when it fully comes. And that's why with some of you, when you come into your house, it's a different vibe. What is it? People are sensing the kingdom. When they come here and they're treated with, with hospitality and embraced and loved, and they're like, wow, these people are nice. No, it's the kingdom of God. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Listen to Eugene Peterson on the church. Eugene Peterson says, so why the church? Listen to his answer. The short answer is because the Holy Spirit formed it to be a colony of heaven in a country of death. The Holy Spirit has formed the church to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. The church is the core element of the Holy Spirit's strategy to provide human witness and physical presence to Jesus' kingdom in this world. It is not the kingdom completely, but it is a witness to the kingdom. That's why we gather, guys. That's why we don't go it alone. It's because together we form an outpost of the kingdom. We are, isn't this awesome? A colony of heaven in the country of death. And this is something, too, that we get to see within some of the members even of our church. I think of Holly and Alicia in Cambodia, right? Holly and Alicia, if you guys could be in prayer for them, they really need your prayer right now. Holly and Alicia um, are over there, and what they do in Cambodia is they rescue girls out of sex trafficking. And, um, and this is uh, Holly, who's 
Dawn and Chad's sister, and so really close to us. And what they do is they rescue girls out of um, sex trafficking, and they've developed some homes, some discipleship homes, where these girls get to be in a place that's safe, a place that's family, right? I mean, it's the first family probably they've ever felt. They get to learn freely about Jesus. They get to find meaningful employment. They get to be free from, from the yoke of oppression, right? And the rod of their oppressors. That is the church being an outpost of the kingdom. Because when the kingdom comes, there's going to be no one enslaved, no one exploited, right? And in those homes, there's this pocket, right? There's this pocket of the kingdom. Be praying for them. It's a colony of heaven in a country of death. And so are we as God helps us. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you and uh, are so thankful for Christmas. And we're just thankful for Christmas because it's just fun, too. It's fun, and there's food, and there's family, and there's all these things. But Lord, all that stuff points to the fact that your son has been born to be king of the world. And he is reigning, and he will reign completely in a way that we can all feel and see and know sometime soon. And we just pray, Lord, that we would enter this season with that hope. We pray, Lord, that we would hold fast to him as the solution to all of our problems, that we would proclaim who he is to others, to our neighbors, to our friends, to people at work. And Lord, we pray that you would help us this year as a new year starts, Lord, that you'd help us to live in your kingdom, to submit ourselves to your good king you've given us. And we pray for ourselves as a church, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would knit us together tightly, that we would be that outpost of heaven here to invite people in so they could experience your kingdom and wonder about you and how to know you, and that we could explain that, Lord. Um, I also want to pray, Lord, too, for, for Holly and Alicia and all the others in Cambodia, Lord. I pray that even now you'd be putting protection over them, um, that there would be a spirit of joy in those houses around Christmas as some of those girls have experiencing Christmas for the first time and hearing of the things of this Savior King for the first time. Lord, we pray you'd bless them and protect them, that they would flourish. Father, I thank you for all these people, Lord. Help us tune our hearts to sing your praise this season. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at covgrace.org slash Menifee.